already said, I'm continuing the sermon series entitled Living in a Prophetic Age. I hope that as we've been going through this series that this has been stimulating some thought and interest in looking into prophecy and how it relates to the world we're living in right now. And I hope that prophecy is becoming a little bit more alive to you and a little bit more relevant, that you're not just skipping over it in your Bible anymore, but maybe saying, hey, there's something here for me that we can dive into. And so uh, we want to continue to do that this morning. So I'd ask you to bow with me once more, and let's ask God to bless his word. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have given us your word, and that you have given us prophecy for a reason. Thank you, Lord, that even though there are elements of it that can be confusing or difficult to understand, We thank you that by your Holy Spirit, that you can guide us into understanding. And especially, Lord, as this age in which we live, we sense the time drawing ever closer of your return. Thank you that you have given us the command to be alert, to watch for the signs, and to be ready for your return, so that we would not be caught unawares. We would not be as those who are caught sleeping, but that instead we would be alert, we would be awake, and we would be doing exactly what you've called us to do, each one, right until the very end. And so I pray this morning, Lord, as we again open your word to understand prophecy as it applies to our times, that you would give us understanding by your Holy Spirit. Speak through me, your servant, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, what city is that? Jerusalem. The landscape is unmistakable, the Dome of the Rock iconic, and of course this city has stood at the center of world affairs for thousands and thousands of years. And so this morning I want to pose the question, it's the title of the sermon, why is Jerusalem so important? It was just over a month ago, on December 6th, 2017, that United States President Donald Trump stepped up to the platform at the White House and he announced to the world, I have determined that it is time to officially recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. This stunning announcement shocked the world and it dominated the news headlines for the next weeks. And even as Israel celebrated this announcement, Many Palestinians and Arab Muslims around the world reacted with rage. Hamas fired some 30 rockets from the Gaza Strip into Israel, and many threats of further violence were uttered, including by Turkish President Erdogan, that this move would throw the entire region into a ring of fire. The backlash carried over into the United Nations, where a resolution was brought forward which condemned the United States' action and sought to block them from moving their embassy to Jerusalem. On December 21st, the vote passed in a landslide, with 128 in favor, only 9 against, with 35 abstentions, including Canada. This forced the United States Ambassador to the United Nations, Nikki Haley, to use the United States veto to nullify the resolution. She then gave this scathing rebuke, saying, quote, To its shame, the United Nations has long been a hostile place for the state of Israel. Now, all of this modern-day controversy begs the question, what's the big deal? 
Why is the ancient city of Jerusalem so important? Why are people still arguing and fighting over it? In fact, Jerusalem, when you look at it, is not a strategic city. It does not sit on a port. It's not on a major trade route. And yet, it has stood at the center of world controversy for millennia, right until this very day. Why is Jerusalem so important? Well, in order to answer that properly, we need to take another crash course in history. Last week, for those of you who were here, we learned how in 1948, Israel declared herself an independent state. And the miraculously, in the aftermath of that, they survived a coordinated attack from all of their neighboring enemies. And against all odds, they won a stunning victory, thereby fulfilling prophecies 2,600 years old that Israel would be regathered for a second time. So now, in 1967, something equally as stunning occurred. Israel retakes their ancient capital city of Jerusalem in what became known as the Six-Day War. In this picture, you see Israeli troops celebrating that they've captured the Temple Mount. And there you can see the Dome of the Rock directly behind them. Now, those of you who know the history of this war, again, the five-nation coalition which surrounded Israel had regrouped after 1948. They had rearmed and were now more intent than ever of finishing the job of eradicating this fledgling nation of Israel. And again, as the forces gathered, the, the threats were uttered against Israel. Most of the watching world thought that Israel would be wiped off the map. They were doomed. But in a stunning reversal... In only six days' time, the Israels decimated the Arab forces and took control of the Sinai Peninsula, the west bank of the Jordan River, and the ancient city of Jerusalem. In the aftermath of the war, desiring peace, Israel gave the entire Sinai back to Egypt as a gesture of goodwill. They then made an offer of giving the west bank and east Jerusalem back to the Palestinian Arabs so that they could form their own nation there. But the Arabs rejected Israel's offer outright and then proceeded at the 1967 Arab League summit to pass their infamous three-point resolution. No peace with Israel. No recognition of Israel. No negotiations with Israel. And the final communique of that meeting underscored the Palestinians' right to regain the whole of Palestine, and that is to destroy the state of Israel. This has remained their default position ever since. And even twice then, in in the year 2000 and in the year 2008, Israel offered the Palestinians 94% of the West Bank as well as East Jerusalem in exchange for peace. But they refused both offers. So now this begs the question, is this merely a political problem? Is this just something we need better politicians and more negotiations to solve Or is there something much deeper going on as to why this ancient city of Jerusalem is still so hotly contested today? To begin to answer those questions, we need to go back 2,500 years in Scripture to the book of Zechariah. So I'd invite you to turn there with me to Zechariah chapter 12. Henry read it for us earlier, Zechariah chapter 12. And there, let's focus in on the first three verses And see what it has to say about our current context regarding Jerusalem. 
it begins, a prophecy, the word of the Lord concerning Israel. The Lord who stretches out the heavens, who lays the foundations of the earth, and who forms the human spirit within a person, declares. Here he's giving his credentials. This is not man's opinion. This is not Zechariah's opinion. This is the creator God who declares this. Verse 2. I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that sends all the surrounding peoples reeling. Judah will be besieged as well as Jerusalem. Verse 3. On that day when all the nations of the earth are gathered against her, I will make Jerusalem an immovable rock for all the nations. All who try to move it will injure themselves. Very interesting. Now, this prophecy is still primarily concerning things yet to come. But from what we've just learned, it's not very hard to imagine this happening, is it? Because first off, in order for this 2,500-year-old prophecy to even have the possibility of being fulfilled, the nation of Israel first needs to exist, and second, needs to have Jerusalem. And incredibly, both of those things have happened In our time. After 1900 years of exile, they are there and they have Jerusalem. Secondly, our generation has already witnessed on three separate occasions, 1948, 1967, and 1973, where Israel won stunning victories that sent the surrounding peoples reeling. And if we jump ahead in prophecy, in this prophecy to verse 8, we read that in a still future battle, On that day, the Lord will shield those who live in Jerusalem, so that the feeblest among them will be like David, and the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord going out before them. In other words, this is saying that all the people, from the smallest to the greatest, will be mighty warriors. In fact, it's implying they will be supernaturally empowered warriors. And this is drawing on the imagery of David's men of, mighty men of renown who single-handedly, some of these men stood against a thousand and stood in a field and struck them down, one soldier against a thousand. This is the, the imagery that is being drawn on. And we see the first fruits of that fulfillment today. Because consider that despite Israel's tiny size and population, Israel's military is ranked among the top ten most powerful militaries on planet Earth today. And in technology, her only peer is the United States of America. That's how technologically advanced Israel is right now today. Her only peer is the United States, who is in fact buying technology from Israel. The third thing Zechariah says, when all the nations of the world are gathered against her, All the nations of the world at some future point will gather against Israel. What did we witness just last month? In the United Nations, we witnessed 128 nations voting against Israel, with only nine in favor. Are you beginning to put the pieces together? My friends, when we are seeing a 2,500-year-old prophecy beginning to mesh together perfectly with our headlines today, it's not hard to imagine. It's not a big leap to picture the entire fulfillment taking place, perhaps in the near future. 
of course. It doesn't have to happen this year. It doesn't have to happen next year. It doesn't even have to happen 50 years from now. God's not in a hurry. God's not in a hurry. He's not pushed by human timetables. However, what we can say with a great degree of certainty is that the stage is set. But again, I ask, what is it specifically about Jerusalem and that soil that is so important? For that, we must go even further back in history. Genesis 22, verses 1 and 2. Let me read it for you. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. And so the place that God led Abraham to go and sacrifice Isaac was Mount Moriah. As a side note, I'd always heard it said Mount Moriah, and so that's how I'd always said it my whole life. And when we were in Israel, I'd asked our tour guide about where's Mount Moriah. And then he had given us a little lesson and informed us that Moriah is an American pop singer. (laughs) Whereas Mount Moriah is in Israel. So it's it's not Mount Moriah, that's Mariah Carey. No, it's Mount Moria. That's the Hebrew pronunciation. So now you know. So then the question, and he finally he gave the answer. Where is Mount Moria located? Well, for that, we turn to 2 Samuel. And there in 2 Samuel, we learn that about a thousand years after Abraham and Isaac on Mount Moria, King David captured the stronghold city of Jerusalem, and later on he bought the threshing floor of a man named Arana the Jebusite. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Then after David's death, we read in 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1. Now Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David at the place that David had, rep- had prepared on the threshing room floor. And so, if you put the pieces together, Mount Moriah is none other than the Temple Mount. Now, in this picture, an artist has superimposed what King Solomon's temple would have looked like over the modern-day city of Jerusalem and the Temple Mount. As you can see in the picture, this is just an artist's rendering of what the dimensions that are given in the Bible of the mighty and magnificent ancient wonder of the world, King Solomon's temple, would have looked like. It would have absolutely dominated the skyline for miles around. And yes, it was covered in gold. It would have glittered and sparkled in the sun. It was utterly magnificent. And so, around the first century, we know, pardon me, uh, going back to Mount Moria, Solomon there, that temple stood until King Nebuchadnezzar, of course, came with the Babylonian army in 586, and that magnificent and glorious temple was destroyed. Seventy years later, after King Cyrus of Persia allowed the Jews to return home from captivity, they rebuilt the temple, although it was significantly smaller. In fact, it was so much smaller that when the foundations were marked out, it says that the the old men who had seen the glories of Solomon's temple wept, because in comparison, the new temple was so small. 
the grandeur of Solomon's temple has never been replicated. Well, then, around the first century, King Herod the Great, he took that small temple, and he made some significant additions to the temple courtyards, and it became known thereafter as Herod's Temple. And it was in that temple that stood at the time of Jesus that Jesus would have gone into the temple courtyards and many of the accounts of Jesus' life took place. This picture that you're looking at is a picture that I personally took in Israel. There is a a model scaled-down city of Jerusalem from the time of Christ, and that is what the temple courtyard and the inner temple would have looked like in Jesus' day. And so it was there upon that altar and that temple that the Passover lamb was sacrificed to atone for the sin of the nation. But most significantly of all, it was on Mount Moriah, in fact, just a couple hundred yards away from the Temple Mount, that the other Passover lamb was sacrificed to atone not only for the sins of the nation, but for the world. Jesus, the perfect lamb of God, was crucified there, on Mount Moriah. This is a picture of a picture that was taken in the 1800s of the top part of Mount Moriah that stands just a couple hundred yards away from the Temple Mount. There, of course, on the rock face, if you, if you use your imagination, you can see what looks like possibly the face of a skull. And this is likely what was known as Golgotha, the place of the skull. And it is most likely that that is where Jesus, the Lamb of God, was crucified there upon Mount Moria. This is what it looks like today. The same mount that that last picture is, is on the left. On the bottom part is now a bus station. And standing on top of Mount Moria, on on that, what is most likely Golgotha, now is a Muslim cemetery. But it's quite likely on this hill that the Lord Jesus shed his blood in atonement for us all. So I ask again, why is Jerusalem so important? Well, first and foremost is because it was there that God's plan of salvation for the entire world has unfolded. It began with Abraham and Isaac, it carried through the temples, and it culminated when God the Father, like Abraham, willingly sacrificed his son, Jesus. But unlike Abraham, the knife was not stayed. The wrath of God was poured out upon Jesus, the Son. His blood was poured out, the perfect sacrifice for everyone, enabling our forgiveness and bringing us to God. This is why Jerusalem will forever stand as important at the center of God's redemptive plan for the world. The second reason that Jerusalem is so important is because God has claimed it for himself. Jerusalem, also known as Zion, is God's holy city. He makes that plain throughout scriptures. Here's just a couple of verses. Second Chronicles 6, verse 6. God says, But now I have chosen Jerusalem for my name to reside. Of all cities of the earth, God has chosen Jerusalem for his holy name to reside. Zechariah chapter 8, verse 2. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I am very jealous for Zion. I am burning with jealousy for her. In other words, God has signed the title deed himself. He says he's jealous for Jerusalem. And it's like he's the husband and Jerusalem is his bride. He will not share her with anyone else. And so God is jealous for Jerusalem. It belongs to him. Which leads to the third reason. 
that Jerusalem is so important. There is an age-old spiritual battle taking place for that soil. I want you to take one guess at who would want to steal and corrupt and destroy whatever God has laid claim to. That's right. I think you've already said it in your own mind. The age-old enemy, the serpent, known as the devil or Satan. And because Jerusalem stands at the geographical center of God's plan of salvation for the entire world, Satan has done everything in his power to subvert it, to take control of it, and to use it for his own ends, with the goal, of course, of destroying it in the end. And we can see the trail of Satan's opposition to Jerusalem throughout history. Last week, we learned about how Jerusalem was utterly destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. And then just as Jesus predicted, not one stone of the temple would be left standing upon another. Well, in 570 AD, a man named Muhammad was born. And Muhammad, of course, went on to form the religion of Islam. Interestingly enough, he claimed to have been visited by the angel Gabriel, who forcefully gave him the message of the Quran, which he recorded. And to this, I'll remind you that the scriptures tell us that Satan can appear as an angel of light in order to deceive. Well, following Muhammad's death, the Muslims believe that he ascended up to heaven from Mount Moria. And get this, they believe that he ascended up to heaven from the exact same rock where the temple once stood. And that is why today, what you see dominating the Temple Mount is known as the Dome of the Rock. Standing on the exact same place where the Holy of Holies once stood. And so the Muslims claimed this mount for themselves, and in 691, they finished this massive Al-Asqua Mosque. Now, many people will say that this is just a coincidence. It's just a coincidence that a religion inherently hostile to the Jews and Christianity laid claim to the Temple Mount as its own sacred site. But I want you to consider this. Inside that dome, all around the inside of the the massive uh, dome, the archway on the inside and over all of the archways, is an inscription that's taken as a direct quote from the Quran, which says this. O people of the scripture, this is referring to believers, O people of the scripture, do not exaggerate in your religion, nor utter aught concerning Allah save the truth. The Messiah, Jesus, son of Mary, was only a messenger of Allah, and his word which he conveyed unto Mary, and a spirit from him. So believe in Allah and his messengers, and say not three, cease, it is better for you. Allah is only one God. Far is it removed from his transcendent majesty that he should have a son. He is all that is in the heavens and all that is in the earth, and Allah is sufficient as defender. So in case you missed it in all of that, I want to underline what it says. Far is it removed from his transcendent majesty that he should have a son. It's denying the deity of Jesus Christ. His single most important claim when he was on earth was that he was and is the Son of God. He was killed for it. And now today, on Mount Moria, the very place where God called Abraham and Isaac, where his temple stood, where he fulfilled his plan of salvation 
for the entire world through Jesus, his only begotten son, now stands a monument telling Christians that Jesus is not God's son. Now you tell me, is this a coincidence? This just happenstance. I think not. I think Satan's fingerprints are all over it. Remember, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 tells us, For we war not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And it's clear that whatever and whoever and wherever God claims something as his own, Satan will do everything in his power to usurp and derail and defile it and take it for himself. And this is why Jerusalem remains at the center of controversy and end times events. It is why Satan continues to stir up the nations of the world in an irrational hatred towards the Jews. And why one day a great army will gather to attack Jerusalem, only to be utterly humiliated and destroyed by God himself. But now the final reason as to why Jerusalem remains so important today is because God still has plans for it. Today, across from this exact mount, stands this view. Some of you will recognize it because you've been there or seen a picture of it. It's the Mount of Olives. It's what stands directly across from Mount Moria. In the bottom is the Garden of Gethsemane in the Kidron Valley. And on top of it today, there's houses standing there. But that is the place where a very significant event happens. Because Acts chapter 1 verse 12 informs us that it is from that very hill that Jesus ascended into heaven from the Mount of Olives. And now we go back to Zechariah and we skip ahead in his prophecies to chapter 14 verses 1 and 2. And it tells us of a second army coming against Jerusalem. And this time it will succeed in capturing half of the city. But then listen to what happens next, Zechariah chapter 14, verses 3 and 4. Then the Lord will go out to fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem. So we see in scripture that just as Jesus left earth from the Mount of Olives, he will return to earth upon the Mount of Olives. He will then defeat the armies and restore Jerusalem as his holy city from which he will rule the nations in the millennial kingdom. And now one more question. Where precisely will Jesus enter Jerusalem? Well, the scriptures actually tell us he will enter through the eastern gate. The eastern gate was reserved for royalty. Only kings and princes and and those in the entourage were allowed to enter Jerusalem through the eastern gate. There's only one problem with that, though. The eastern gate today is sealed shut. Now, this might seem strange, but I want you to listen to Ezekiel chapter 44, verses 1 to 3, because it gets stranger still. Listen to this. This is an ancient prophecy. Then the man brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary, the one facing east, and it was shut. The Lord said to me, this gate is to remain shut. It must not be opened. No one may enter through it. It is to remain shut because the Lord, the God of Israel, has entered through it. The prince himself is the only one 
who may sit inside the gateway to eat in the presence of the Lord, he is to enter by way of the portico of the gateway and go out the same way. You are looking at the eastern gate, the one sealed shut, which faces east, the Mount of Olives, and it provides the only entrance to the Temple Mount from that direction. This gate was destroyed in 70 AD during the Roman conquest, and it was rebuilt by the Byzantines in the 6th century. It was a normal functioning gate when it was rebuilt. They didn't brick it up like this. That's not how they built it. However, something strange happened in the year 1541. The Ottoman Sultan Suleiman sealed this eastern gate shut, and it's remained that way ever since. He apparently learned of the prophecies which predicted that the Messiah would enter through the eastern gate, and so he decided he was going to stop that from happening. And he sealed it up with bricks. As an added precaution, if you think that's a little out there, but he thought, let's make sure this doesn't happen in my lifetime. And as an added precaution, they built a cemetery directly across from the gate. Conventional wisdom being that a Jewish holy man would never defile himself by walking through a Muslim cemetery. And the picture you're looking at is the view back towards the eastern gate and the dome of the rock from on top of Mount of Olives. And what do you see in the foreground? A massive cemetery. In fact, almost the entire Kidron Valley is a cemetery. It was built there deliberately as a precaution against the Messiah entering. My friends, you just can't make this stuff up. You really can't. And now the final reason, the ultimate reason that Jerusalem is so important is because it is where we will live for eternity. In Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 to 4, we read this culmination of John's incredible revelation of future events. Listen to what he describes. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. My friends, the new Jerusalem, the holy city, is where God desires you And every last one on planet Earth, he desires that we would dwell there with him for eternity. So let me just say, if you have any doubt left in your mind that we are living in a prophetic age, if you have any doubts remaining that God's word will unfold just as he has said it will, if you wonder at all if we are today in the front lines of a spiritual battle, If you have any doubts remaining that Jesus is going to come back soon, just as he said, I want you to put those doubts to bed just once and for all. Wake up and believe God's word is real, it is true, and it is unfolding even before our very eyes. The time is drawing closer, day by day. So let me just say, if you've you've got to make things right with God, 
Don't wait. God loves you, my friends. Jesus died for you. And so whatever is holding you back from fully surrendering your life to him, today is the day. Lay it down at the cross. Receive his grace. Receive his forgiveness. And receive his power to enable you to live a life that is pleasing to him and that will last for eternity. And let me also just say, if you've been in any way sleepwalking in your relationship with Christ, if you've been pushing him to the side in your life, now is the moment, today is the day, repent. Draw near to him in sincere faith, and he will draw near to you as we fully surrender our lives to him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that your word is true. That the deeper we look into it, the more we put the pieces together, the more we are compelled. It is real. It is happening. And it will all unfold exactly as you have said in its due time. I pray that you would increase our faith to believe this. And I pray that even more than that, Lord, that all of this would stir up within us a deeper sense of urgency to make sure that we are right with you and that we are walking day by day in your will, doing what you have called each one of us to do. For we know not how much time we have left, but we know that you are coming and that one day we will see you. And so I pray, Lord, that as we've considered Jerusalem today, wet our appetites for the new Jerusalem, that one day we will be with you where the old order is put to bed forever, there will be no more death, no more crying, no more pain, no more sorrow, for you will be our God and we will be your people for eternity. We long for that day. And we pray, Lord, that your kingdom will come just as you have promised. Help us to be faithful until that day. And now, Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who just feels a stirring that they need to make things right with you, I pray, Lord, that as we come to your communion table, that you would give us the grace by your spirit to humble ourselves before you and to surrender ourselves to you fully. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.